how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Fada and Papa Michael Jr. grew up surrounded by creativity. His father was a Greek cinematographer, best known for working with John Cassavetes. Through various influences, Papa Michael got involved with photography and then filmmaking. He is now best known for working on movies like Sideways, Walk the Line, The Weatherman, 310 to Yuma, W, The Descendants, Nebraska, Downsizing, and now Ford v. Ferrari. In this interview, he talks about learning on the job, film school through stripper vampire movies, why he shoots in traditional sense, why he didn't initially connect with the script for Sideways, how luck plays into any career, and his involvement with the new Aaron Sorkin film. For more details on Ford Ferrari, listen to episode 195 with screenwriter Jason Keller, or episode 192 with stunt coordinator Darren Prescott. Well, I grew up surrounded by uh, uh, visual arts because my dad, uh, I'm actually junior, Satan Papa Michael Sr., was a uh, uh, amongst other things, uh, a painter, but also um, art director, um, worked uh, with Cassette, well, originally with Jules movies like Fedra, and uh, uh, back in in Greece in the 60s, that was, uh, and, um, you know, then later with Cassavetes, worked on Faces and uh Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Mini Moscovich, Woman Under the Influence. So, uh, um, I, my first visit was Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I was um, uh, on summer vacation in, in Hollywood, and they were shooting in this strip club that Ben Gazzara owned in the story. And I remember there was a guy there with a, a light meter and measuring light. And, adjusting colors and that was actually fred elms he was sort of the gaff around that and um and i go that that looks fun and interesting and uh but uh you know so i transitioned as a, as a teenager i was also you know painting and wanted to be a painter and then at some point thought that was kind of because i was up at night always and it was i, I realized it's kind of a lonely profession. So I transitioned to still photography, got pretty serious, uh, seriously involved with that. And again, I was thinking, oh, that's always me on my own with my cameras and traveling and, uh, you know, either ruining moments by capturing them instead of enjoying them or uh, being upset because I wasn't capturing them. And, um, and then uh, 
uh, went and saw this film. It was a Godard film. It was called Le Mépris, which was basically Contempt with Brigitte Bardot and Jack Palance and uh, Fritz Lang and um, and uh, really uh, grabbed my attention. The cinematography of that, you know, I was always uh, you know interested in films and you know, watching John Ford westerns and Italian. Neorealism and loved, you know, De Sica and Fellini and uh, and then of course French New Wave and then uh, I grew up in, in Munich so I was exposed also to the Germans, Fassbinder and Benders and Volker Schlerndorf and uh, you know so there was always a fascination but this is the first time I noted cinematography isolated that really from the film. Uh, as a whole, and 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 noted down this uh, name Raoul Coutard, who was a cinematographer, who uh, frequently collaborated with Truffaut, and um, and I go, that's 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 a job I think would be the most fun and they make the most sense for me, and uh, since it's it was also you know a life life choice, a lifestyle decision because. Uh, I knew it would be involved with traveling, uh, not really a routine situation, which turned out to be true. <laughs> I got to 50 years later, uh, you know, 40 years later, and I'm never anywhere more than six months uh, traveling around the world all the time, uh, working with people uh, in uh, many different environments. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, the kind of... Um, became a cinematographer like that. I did I did move to New York in eighty three to become to work on film and, and pursue a career in cinematography. Didn't really know how to go about it, but um <clears throat> Ben Gazzara's daughter, Liz Gazzara at the time in New York, she uh, was gonna direct a short film and she had seen my stilts and said to me, Oh, you should shoot my film and I go, Well I don't do that. I don't really know how to do that. She said, Oh, it's the same thing composition then you know how to set that and I stopped and um so um I, I did it and learned really by uh on the job and you know experimenting and making plenty of mistakes and uh, uh then the next person came along and go, Oh you shot Lizard short, you should shoot my short. So I never got to go to film school. Um just really went from one job to another to land it up at Roger Corman back in uh eighty eight. Uh, late 80s and uh, ended up shooting seven or eight Roger Corman films uh, in a period of two years, all feature films done in uh, on a 15-day schedule, ultra low budget, uh, mostly involving strippers getting killed. And um, because you know, with Roger, it was always uh, what set did he have up in his little lumber yard down in Venice on Main Street. And uh, uh, during my period, he happened to have a stripper club set. It, there were three. It would rotate between uh, Medieval Castle because he was doing all, all of the you know, public domain things. He didn't have to buy story rights, uh, the Edgar Allan Poe stories or other uh, medieval <laughs> uh, horror films. And uh, the stripper set and the spaceship set. But while I was there, he had the stripper set. So I did Strip Kid Kill 2 and Dance of the Damned, which was a vampire falling in love with a, a stripper. And 
didn't want to kill her because he loved anyway. So that, that was basically my film school, and and I was quite fortunate because my crew um, were, were uh, AFI students from the American Film Institute, and they all ended up becoming Academy Award-winning cinematographers themselves. So my gaffer was Janusz Szabinski. We shot Chinzis List and Saving Private Ryan, and uh, my camera operator was Wallet Fister, who was my operator for more than 10 years, who shot all of Chris Nolan's movies, including Inception and all the Batmans, and and uh, my dolly grip, key grip, was Mauro Fiore, who won an Oscar for Avatar, so it ended up being this all-star team, and uh, we're still friends and have remained close over, you know, many decades. So, so the industry has, has changed a great deal, but you still mainly focus on subtle camera moves, uh, simplicity. Tell me a little bit about traditional cinematography today and why you still focus on the traditions. Why we still focus on tradition? Well, I mean, our job really hasn't changed. I mean, of course, the approach with technology, you know, we have to make adjustments, but ultimately, no matter what we record to and how we work, I mean, we still, our primary contribution is to tell a story visual. Uh, we still paint with light, whether I'm looking at a monitor doing that or I'm looking with my eyes on set. Uh, uh, that That's still the basic um, goal and uh, you know you still have to decide what the camera movement is what the blocking is what the coverage is you know create the appropriate move, moves not you know not because we can do anything and fly little cameras on drones it it doesn't mean uh, you know it's the right language for that story so uh, you know it really hasn't changed and I don't think it will change um um definition of what a cinematographer or director of photography does will uh, always kind of uh, stay the same. Do you mainly look for powerful screenplays or at this point is it more about the collaborators, the directors and the actors you're working with? The decision on what project to do next is uh, the, the first and strongest factor is the director, because at this point I've worked with a few and I've uh, collaborated uh, uh, on multiple movies with uh, uh, the same directors. I've done five films with James Mangold, five films with Alexander Payne. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's you know, they, they're the ones who approach me and give me the script, of course. You know, then the script is the second and you know, ultimately most important uh, element. Uh, but it depends. It's a combination of, you know, sometimes you read a script and you like it, but then you think, well, with this director, is the, that combination really the, uh, the best one? I mean, I have gotten scripts and then, I mean, it's not, you know, Alexander and Mangold excluded, but where I get a script. I like it. I, I, I try to envision what that director will do with it. And I might think, you know, it's, it's, 
maybe not the best combination, his style and this material, but it works the other way around too, where I get a script that I reads a little more, you know, less layered and interesting and knowing who's going to direct it um, makes me like the, the, the package as a whole. So it's, it's definitely that goes hand in hand, but those are, you know, and then uh, of course the third factor is the cast and who, who I always like when I read the script to know uh, who's uh, going to be playing those roles and, and it enables me to envision it because when I read a script, I kind of watch the whole movie in its finished form in my head. Um, it's edited, and, you know, it has all the images to it. And um, I, it's like I already hear the music. And I, so it's, um, and if I can do that, if that comes easy, I mean, some scripts, you know, like when I read Nebraska, I mean, I kind of saw the film every every frame of it. I mean, it was pretty clear to me how that should be shot, the pacing, uh, uh, the compositions, you know, these figures in these lonely landscapes, the black and white. I mean, it was quite clear. Of course, other scripts, uh, even, I mean, even downsizing, although it's obviously Alexander Payne again and Jim Taylor, but, you know, it didn't, it was harder to, you know, put it all together in my head. So I was struggling with that a bit more. And, uh, you know, the, the, the scripts were, uh, they don't communicate anything to me visually. And uh, uh, it's not even, uh, it's a dialogue heavy or, I mean, now I'm doing an Aaron Sorkin film. I'm in pre-production right now, as you call me. Um, and it's about the Chicago 7 trial. And again, you know, um, maybe he's not necessarily known as the most visual director yet. I mean, it's only his second film, but, you know, you read it and uh, it just... You know, it's it's a, it's a page turner. I also read Molly's Game. It was 200 pages, and I was just like falling through it. And, and same with this script, and the way he overlaps and the scenes and the dialogue, and you know how how it's uh, you know, but the pacing uh, of the writing. I mean, this is it's fascinating. So, um, you know, so that that the this script I think dictates. You know, your or that's your initial uh, concept of the film. And uh, uh, in my case, um, I mean, it obviously gets kind of made three times. It gets made in the writing, and then it gets made when it, when it gets executed and filmed on set. And then I think it sort of gets made again in the editing and with the music. So it goes through these three major stages. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, you know, but your initial reaction is is purely you know your initial instincts of how to execute it come comes from the very first reading, and a lot of those elements sort of hold true throughout the process. This is kind of a, a hindsight question, but for our novice cinematographers listening, who are making their own version of like stripper vampire films. <laughs> When did you start to be more selective? Like, when did you have that gut feeling or what kind of led you to going from gathering experience phase to more like focusing on, you know, your real uh, vision or career and and traditional cinematography? You know, when you're young and you're starting out, you're you're just excited to be working. Uh, 
in, in the field in the capacity that the sector itself uh but of course uh yeah you uh, you know and you're still experimenting and you're learning on every job it doesn't really matter what the movie is because you're just uh, you know refining your craft and um but yeah of course there comes a point where you go know, i really can't do any more stripping movies and uh you know so uh, uh luckily you know at corman traditionally a lot of the, these directors moved on and they all were starting at roger corman and in my case i did a lot of movies with katia rubin and you know we did she moves to she graduated and then we did poison ivy with drew barrymore and Tom Scarrett, and you know that was a five million dollar New Line movie. So I suddenly had eight weeks instead of three weeks, and uh, you know more and more equipment and bigger crews. Um, but you know you don't really control that your your career at least at that point. I mean you do the the projects get get better and get bigger, and you are getting uh, more. Um, a better selection of material um and and then you know you i mean you know I, then it was about getting my first studio picture my first studio picture was cool runnings which you know when i got it i go okay that's that's kind of a s- silly movie but you know i didn't care it was a disney studio film and it had john candy and it was fantastic and I, <clears throat> but while i was doing it i go well you know it's kind of a you know, silly movie, of course. And then I ended up sitting at the premiere and <laughs> cheering with everyone else, like Jamaica. You know, I go, okay, well, it's formula, but it works. <laughs> and you know, but then with that director, John Turtletaw, we did while you we were sleeping, and then we did Phenomenon. You know, so you kind of grow with the people that you're collaborating with. Uh, um, I mean, you can be more selective early and 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 try and take control of your path. Uh, uh, but sometimes you also get lucky, you know, you hook up, I mean, like Rodrigo Pietro, his first movie, uh, you know, that got him acclaimed was Amoris Paris, and it came uh, pretty early in his career, so then, you know, he had a relationship with Alejandro, and then with Alfonso, and same with Chivo, and then with Lebetsky, I mean, you know, they, it really depends on uh, who your director team is, and and, uh, you know, if you're lucky, you get to work on good movies. You know, not everyone has to go. There's no rule to what your path is. I mean, you know, you can, I mean, Wally Pister was doing B and C movies, you know, the worst <laughs> trashy movies for a decade, you know, till he came across Chris Nolan. And one of those low budget movies was Memento. And um, I remember being invited to a screening and, I go, guys, that's really good. It's a really interesting movie. It looks amazing. And, and they go, I know, but we don't have a distributor. And do you, can you, do you know anyone? And I mean, you know, but that was the beginning of, you know, a life changer for for um, Wally and, and Chris. And, uh, you know, same with Janusz. I mean, Janusz was doing all these, Kaminsky was doing all these B-movies. And I remember uh, Stephen had seen some Lifetime Channel TV movie he did with Roseanne Arquette called Wildflower and uh, happened to catch that on television um, and called Janusz and offered him Schindler's List and he was, you know, 30-year-old uh, fairly, you know, inexperienced cinematographer at the time, so 
of course, that changed his life and has made, I don't know, 15 movies with Stevenson. So, uh, but you know, um, there was definitely a point actually, uh, being a bit, uh, type cast or how do you say pigeonholed, <laughs> pigeonholed in romantic comedies because it just happened that those movies I was doing, uh, like while you were sleeping and, uh, were the movies that at that point were my biggest movies and were making good box office. And of course, you know, uh, people think, oh, he shot that. So they send you similar uh, genres and think uh, you should be doing that. And, you know, there was, uh, you know, I did America's Sweethearts, Joe directing it. At some point I go, I got to kind of get out of that route a bit. And, uh, and, uh, seek the different kind of directors and different, you know, although they were lower budgets again and uh, got less exposure. And so I did uh, one of those early ones that changed my path a bit and brought me into uh, a new direction was a million dollar hotel. That was the vendors actually Bono had written the story and, um, uh, but, you know, that got uh, a lot of international attention, uh, especially for the visuals. And so then I started getting scripts from European directors and uh, I ended up doing a movie in Republic of Georgia called 27 Missing Kisses, which uh, also went to Cannes. And uh, I had done one prior to that, Diane Keaton directed Unstrung Heroes, which is still one of my favorites. And um but, uh, you know, that was actually still uh, under Katzenberg at Disney, and they didn't really quite know what it was. They wanted a comedy, and it was, you know, a bit darker than that. So it got lost a little bit. But, uh, you know, so then you start doing different kind of work, and you get uh, work offered to you that's more in that direction. And, I mean, I think what brought a change was when Alexander Payne called me for Sideways, and I'd known Alexander for over 15 years. I actually, um, when I still was doing shorts in the mid-80s, uh, he had interviewed me for his short, for his graduate film at UCLA, and uh, um, didn't hire me, but I got a different UCLA graduate film, and he was actually the boom guy on that. So we knew each other, and we also lived in the same neighborhood. We lived in uh, Silver Lake, Echo Park. We would go to the Vista. There was Onyx Cafe right next to it. So we, you know, we always knew of each other. And uh, so kind of randomly, 15 years later, he called me, and I was in Greece on vacation. He said, oh, do you want to shoot my next film? I'm like, sure. He goes, oh, great. I said, I'll send you a script. <laughs> And I read it, and I go, oh, great. I get to do the first not-so-good Alexander Payne movie. <laughs> because it just, I didn't see it on page. Uh, it was one of those things. But then, of course, on set and with Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church and their chemistry, and, you know, it just became, you know, it's now one of my favorite film, all-time films. I think it's held up really amazingly. And every time I watch it, it's... It's like the big Lebowski, like every time you watch it, you find something new to be amused by. So, 
So you've, you've worked with uh, James Mangold and Christian Bale and Matt Damon before, but what kind of stood out about this story, or is there any big challenge you weren't expecting while making the new film? Uh, well, with with Mangold, you know, having done four movies prior to Ford versus Ferrari, I mean, we're very with very similar sensibilities towards. Uh, visual storytelling we're very much in sync we're almost like brothers i mean we we're the same age group we like the same cinema he's a fan of japanese films ozu kurosawa and uh, so we you know his his father is a painter he went to cal arts and although he's very successful and able to function in the studio system he's still kind of at heart in the auteur filmmaker and you know, loves to write, uh, obviously his background heavy and Copland and, uh, you know, so, uh, we're very much in sync and, um, you know, I'm always looking forward to working with him and, uh, where our directions and our collaboration, um, I mean, it's, it's scarce and people how similar we are, like I'll be saying operator, uh, you know, pan left a little bit and tilt up and, and Mangold will, not knowing that I just said that, go, pan left and little and tipped up. You know, it's like, it's, it's very uh, crazy, actually. But, uh, yeah, and then, of course, Christian Bale, we had done 310 to Yuma. I mean, it's it's always inspiring to work with actors and performances like that. I mean, it just kind of dictates and tells you what the camera needs to be doing, where to be, what moments to capture when when... You have Joaquin Phoenix, like in Walk the Line, doing whatever he's doing on stage. It's just kind of, you know, where where to go with the camera. It's it's it's, it's pretty clear. And uh, with Mangold, we well, you know, very instinctive. We don't really preconceive and plan that much. We don't really do shot lists uh, prior to the film. We always wait till we see the actors how they're gonna how the blocking turns out and, and then decide how to cover a scene. And, uh, you know, always open to, you know, we're able to, uh, you know, the, um, resolve the shots fairly quickly after we watch rehearsal. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a more organic, uh, instinctive process, which I really enjoy. I mean, then, you know, other good directors, for example, I work with Gord Abinsky, on two films, Mouse Hunt and Weatherman with Michael Caine. And, you know, he's much more controlled. He draws little storyboards for each day. Every frame frame is pre-designed. And it's a different process. You know, I prefer being a little more, uh, how should I say, you know, um, yeah, loose and uh, open to discovering these little accidents and taking advantage of things that, I mean, like on Nebraska, same with Booster. And I mean, you know, it's very hard to really pre-decide and design uh, how the film should be, uh, how it should be covered until you see him do his thing. And then you go, oh, look what he's doing there. We've got to get, get in here and get this close up here. Um, I think it just... Uh, allows you to take advantage of you know these little moments that, that are always popping up on the set. Thank you for tuning into the show. If this is your first time listening. 
please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.